Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Before I start, I don't want anyone caught off guard, so please note that this case includes allegations of abuse, including sexual assault against children. Judy Johnson was certain something was wrong with her three-year-old son. Mitchell had been having outbursts, sometimes violent ones. He'd awaken from nightmares screaming in his sleep. Sometimes he would hide under his bed, especially when a man was around. What worried Judy most, though, was his bottom. It looked red and angry in a way that terrified her. Soon, Judy knew what happened. Little Mitchell was being sexually abused by a male teacher working at his preschool. That had to be it. Before Mitchell had started at the McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, he hadn't displayed any of these symptoms, Judy reasoned. So, in August 1983... Judy went to the police, and the police reached out to other parents of students at the school. The next thing the small town knew, dozens of children were stepping forward with detailed and horrific allegations against not just that male teacher, but all the teachers at McMartin Preschool. Seven people, including a 76-year-old grandmother, were arraigned on hundreds of counts of molesting children at a Manhattan Beach nursery school. The case that unfolded would not only prove to be among the longest and most expensive in American history, but it also would be wrapped up in an era now referred to as the Satanic Panic. Some children allege that a living creature was sacrificed on the church's altar. Now, it'd be easy for me to frame this story as a did it or didn't it happen kind of thing until the very end. But if you're like me, you have a hard time stomaching descriptions of child abuse and animal mutilation. So before we get into the incredibly disturbing allegations, know that they're apparently false. I'm going to share what was reported to police, and I'll be thorough about it without getting overly graphic, but know that there's no evidence pointing to any of these specifics actually having happened. This is a crime of the century that the evidence shows never really occurred. Still, To fully understand this story, you have to understand the allegations people were hearing at the time. So let's get into it. Judy Johnson had been dealt a really rough hand in recent years. The mother of two boys had watched her marriage crumble. Her husband of 13 years left her for another woman, a younger one, just to twist the knife. Not only that, but her oldest son was dying of cancer. He was well enough now to try and lead a normal life, but 13-year-old Mark had inoperable terminal brain cancer. Judy's soon-to-be ex-husband, Brad, had no interest in taking the kids full-time. In fact, she would say, he didn't have much interest in even supporting them financially, which made it tough to make ends meet in the little Manhattan Beach house she shared with her boys. Judy had no question gone through a lot, 
So maybe that's why she did something most parents would consider inconceivable. This is journalist Kevin Cody in an Oxygen documentary on the case. She dropped her kid off. I mean, her, her child first went to the preschool because she just dropped him there without enrolling him, just left him at this preschool and drove home. This was the morning of May 12, 1983. Judy packed at lunch for Mitchell, dropped him off at the McMartin Preschool, and drove away. Might sound simple enough, but she had never contacted anyone with the school before that. She simply left her son there with the hope that the well-reputed workers in the school would take him in for the day. Lucky for Judy, they did. Even luckier, they forgave the very bizarre and irresponsible behavior, and while they didn't have room for Mitchell to start at McMartin right away, they agreed to let him start school there in the summer. Within months, they would mark that decision as the worst they ever made. The McMartin Preschool had been around since the 1950s. It was founded by a woman named Virginia McMartin, who had developed a stellar reputation in Manhattan Beach, earning the city's equivalent of Woman of the Year in 1977. As the preschool grew roots, it became a family business. First, Virginia's daughter, Peggy McMartin Bucky, began working there. Then Peggy's children, named Peggy Ann and Raymond Bucky, joined as well. Plus, the school had even grown enough to hire outsiders. It was a prestigious school with teachers that had been there dozens of years. Most of the teachers were older. The Los Angeles County Preschool was situated at the corner of Walnut Avenue and Manhattan Beach Boulevard. Its L-shaped structure had big bay windows and a stucco exterior. It pretty much looked like any daycare anywhere. Children's toys littered the yard. A quaint hand-painted sign hung outside. To make sure the kids stayed out of traffic and to keep trespassers away, there was a chain-link fence around the property. It was outside of that fence that Judy Johnson left Mitchell, then just two and a half years old, which is one of the reasons the McMartin staff was so concerned. He could have bolted into traffic or, worse, been nabbed by a stranger. By the time of that incident, Virginia McMartin didn't have a lot to do with the day-to-day operations of the place. She was 76 years old and entrusted her daughter Peggy to run things. Virginia's grandchildren, Peggy Ann and Ray Bucky, both worked as teachers. Peggy Ann had been there a while, but Raymond was pretty new. He was the kind of kid who graduated high school with no real ambition in mind. He dropped out of college twice and spent much of his time hanging out at the beach, which he could do because he lived rent-free in an apartment owned by his folks. He started working at the family preschool just because he could. But once he started, he found that he actually liked the job. He related to kids better than he related to adults. Plus, he was the only male teacher there, which seemed to matter, especially to some of the young boys, representation and all. Mitchell was placed into Ray's class. So when Judy Johnson came to believe someone was molesting her son, her mind jumped to Ray. On August 12, 1983, Judy called the Manhattan Beach Police Department and was patched through to Detective Jane Hoag. Hoag, by this time, was an 11-year veteran, having started working with the department when she was 22. She was known as a tough-talking, old-school cop. You kind of have to be the gruff type when you're investigating sexual abuse. 
The story Judy told the detective was beyond upsetting. She said that her son's bottom had been red and irritated, sometimes even a little bloody, and that he finally told her that he'd been molested by Ray Bucky, his teacher at the McMartin Preschool. Hoag knew a bombshell when she heard one. McMartin had such a good reputation in the community that residents would be absolutely rocked if they heard about this accusation. Hoag wanted everything to be handled carefully, so she told Judy Johnson to take her son to a specialist straight away. The child was examined by a doctor at UCLA, and the doctor found something consistent with molestation. The exam was by no means definitive, but there were signs that suggested something could have happened. The little boy had a rash around his anus, which a doctor described as lax. It was enough to arrest Ray Bucky, but nowhere near enough to charge him. This, of course, upset Judy Johnson, who believed her son had been assaulted. Detective Hoag believed it too, but the thing with the American judicial system is that there's supposed to be hard evidence to make charges stick. Hoag had a toddler's disjointed story and an inconclusive report from a doctor. So police did two things. First, Chief Harry Kohlmeyer Jr. sent out a letter to parents of all McMartin students. It began, quote, Dear parent, this department is conducting a criminal investigation involving child molestation. Ray Bucky, an employee of Virginia McMartin's preschool, was arrested September 7, 1983, by this department. End quote. This letter wasn't just sent to current McMartin parents. It was also sent to families whose now older children had already graduated from the preschool. Kids whose tenure at the place didn't even overlap with Ray Bucky's. The thinking being that because his mom and grandma were the main business runners, he might have been given access to the place long before he officially worked there. The letter went on to ask parents to talk to their children and ask if anyone had witnessed abuse or been subjected to it. Quote, Our investigation indicates that possible criminal acts include oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttock or chest area, and sodomy, possibly committed under the pretense of taking the child's temperature. Also, photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Bucky to leave a classroom alone with a child during any nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Bucky tie up a child, is important. End quote. This is John Chaffee, a McMartin parent. When that letter arrived, I thought it was just really sad and awful what happened to these other families. It certainly didn't happen to ours. And if something was going on at the school, wouldn't one of our kids have said something? Then the form letter sent to dozens of parents throughout the city amazingly requested that each unnamed recipient keep the investigation strictly confidential. I mean, this is a laughable notion. Imagine you're a parent who gets a letter like this, one that suggests widespread abuse at your child's school. Would you not try to find out more information from your neighbors? Of course, word spread like wildfire. Rattled parents sat down with their children and started asking questions. The children seemed to be just as shocked. No, they said. But the parents pressed. Are you sure? You seemed a little hesitant. You kind of fidgeted. Are you absolutely positive? Some of the kids started getting ticked off. They quit answering. 
Their parents worried that they were shutting down because of the trauma they had endured, possibly at McMartin, at Ray's hands. So they asked again. Their persistence was rewarded. One child after another finally agreed. Yes, Ray Bucky hurt me. He hurt my friends. He threatened me not to tell. Authorities now believe that at least 60 young children were victimized and that the ultimate number could well be much greater. Parents flooded the police department with one allegation after another. The pool of alleged abusers began to expand. Detective Hoag arranged for all of the children to be interviewed at the Children's Institute International, a Los Angeles-based nonprofit providing trauma services to children. Because therapy and abuse was in the organization's wheelhouse, it seemed a good fit for the experts there to handle the interviews of the children. The director, Kathleen Key McFarlane, was especially passionate about child abuse issues. McFarland found that children were typically reluctant to talk about abuse they endured, and she figured that was natural. Lots of adults are barely emotionally equipped to handle trauma, so it stands to reason that children might have an even harder time. So McFarland developed a new interview technique. Using puppets to encourage the children to reveal what happened, the therapists were able to unlock the horrible secrets of the McMartin School. McFarlane's theory was that it would be easier for the kids to tell such a scary secret to a harmless-looking puppet rather than some rando adult. The kids also would have a puppet. So if they had been sworn to secrecy, they could rationalize, well, I'm not telling anyone. The puppet is. Also, to help the kids illustrate what specifically had happened to them, these puppets were anatomically correct. This is McFarlane speaking to reporters. I'm not the only puppet lady in this case. There, My co-therapist, Sandy Krebs, and our pediatrician, Esther Hager, have gotten certainly as much as I have from these children by using puppets, even in the medical exam. The stories these puppets unlocked went much deeper than initially thought. The tales were absolutely harrowing. Prosecutors say some of the victims were only two years old, and their molesters frightened them into keeping quiet about the abuse by slaughtering small animals in front of them. Stories of devil worship and satanic cults corrupting young minds. There were widespread rings of satanic ritualistic abuse. Children began to talk about animal sacrifices, blood rituals, secret tunnels, even cannibalism. There's a widely held opinion that what happened at the daycare was the devil's handiwork. So how could this happen? How could allegations of abuse evolve into tales of satanic worship? Well, Key McFarland's puppets did more than just encourage children to tell the truth. Transcripts of her interviews with children show that the wording of her puppets' questions was incredibly leading. For example, in one interview, McFarland's puppet was talking to another puppet named Mr. Alligator. Mr. Alligator was controlled by a little boy, and McFarland wanted to know about a game that other kids had talked about called Naked Movie Star. Her puppet said, Do you remember that game, Mr. Alligator, or is your memory too bad? Right away, that phrasing signals to the boy that if he doesn't remember, his memory is bad, and kids can't tease out nuance. So his memory being bad means he's bad. Still, the boy said through Mr. Alligator, no, I don't remember that game. 
McFarland sounded disappointed. Oh, Mr. Alligator. Then the boy said, Well, there's a song called Naked Movie Star. Really, it was more of a children's rhyme. What you say is what you are. You're a naked movie star. McFarland's puppet replied, You know what, Mr. Alligator? That means you're smart, because that's the same song the other kids knew, and that's how we really know you're smarter than you look. So you better not play dumb, Mr. Alligator. The boy insisted he had only heard the song, and that was it. But McFarland kept pressing, asking if the boy had ever peeked in a window and seen anyone playing Naked Movie Star. The boy said no, he'd only heard the song. McFarlane actually said, What good are you? You must be dumb. With a few more questions, the boy's story changed. He remembered Naked Movie Star. He remembered kids being photographed in the nude by adults. He remembered pretty much anything McFarlane wanted him to remember. The interviews conducted by her assistants were almost identical. In one, Dr. Astrid Heger told a little girl, I don't want to hear any more no's. Parents weren't shown the entire interviews, though. They were only shown the parts in which their children described abuse. And then they heard Key McFarlane say things like this. I've been working with sexually abused children for 13 years, and I have never seen children as frightened as these children. The parents were mortified and angry. As one mother said, I want them out of society forever. They should never, ever be allowed to be with other children or anybody else, for that matter. How could their children have been going to school day in and day out and being molested in such horrific fashion, and they never noticed anything was wrong? McFarlane explained to the parents that sometimes kids block out these kinds of traumas. More than that, McFarlane was working with a nationally recognized physician named Roland Summit, who was just publishing an article titled Child Sexual Abuse Accommodation Syndrome. And in that article, he specifically claims that children never make detailed allegations in investigations of abuse unless it happened. This is psychiatrist Lee Coleman explaining the syndrome. He's categorically denying that false allegations are a possibility. Summit's article posited that abused children act in certain ways so that they can learn to survive with the abuse. He described five stages. Secrecy, helplessness, entrapment and accommodation, delayed disclosure, and lastly, retraction. That last part is especially tough because it locks in kids once they've agreed they've been abused. Any denials afterward are to be dismissed as the retraction phase of their accommodation syndrome. A saying took hold in Manhattan Beach, believe the children. And the parents did. I have no doubt that Raymond Bucky and others molested my children. The number of victims grew. And this is what 1,000 200 molested kids in the city of Manhattan Beach have told the sheriff's department. And grew. 1,400 children in this community have been ritualistically abused. And grew. That's a third of the school system in the city of Manhattan Beach has been molested. We have eight preschools closed here. This is the child molestation capital of the world. We have more preschools closed in this city than any city this side of Detroit. Those who believed seemed to see Satanism everywhere. 
When Ray Bucky initially was arrested, there wasn't enough evidence to hold him. After Key McFarlane added to the stack of purported victims, however, prosecutors felt they had plenty. Bucky again was arrested on March 22, 1984, as was his 76-year-old grandmother, Virginia McMartin, the woman who just a few years prior had been honored with an award for her work in the city. Tonight, Virginia McMartin is in jail, along with some of her relatives and former teachers. In what may become one of the biggest child molesting cases ever on record, seven nursery school teachers were arraigned today on more than 100 counts of child molestation. In addition to the four core family members facing charges, three teachers were also arrested. Marianne Jackson, Betty Rader, and Babette Spittler. In total, the McMartin Seven faced more than 300 charges related to pedophilia. Here's an interview snippet with Key McFarlane. As we see it now, seven people have been named. Have the children that you've talked to named all of those seven names? No more time. All seven were essentially convicted long before the preliminary hearing, much less the trial. And... It was quite a preliminary hearing. Preliminary hearing is designed in a serious felony case to show enough evidence that there was a crime. How do you feel about it? Would any reasonable man think he did? Very light standard. This is Ray Bucky's defense lawyer, Danny Davis, who had been determined to drag the case out as long as he could. This allowed doubts to fester. The case finally reached the preliminary hearing stage in the fall of 1984. The preliminary hearing and the length that it took is almost entirely my responsibility and fault. Usually preliminary hearings are like a day long. Sometimes they might be a few weeks for really complicated cases. The McMartin preschool prelim dragged on for 20 months. This was a calculated move. My study back to 16th century Europe of social contagion taught me that once you have a scandal, let's call it molestation, and it conflicts dramatically with people in that community, they will inevitably, in that contagion, grab, enslave, and kill a scapegoat. My plan was to take the scandal and the scapegoat and spread the time. A long time passes, and then we all look back with shameful retrospect what we did to those poor people. That's why we had a very, very long preliminary hearing the longest in the history of American jurisprudence. Davis's plan worked. When the hearing wrapped up in 1986, charges against five of the seven McMartin defendants were dismissed. The only charges that remained were against Ray Bucky and his mother, Peggy McMartin Bucky. Those two were in court pleading to be released from jail to await their trials in December 1986 when jolting news came about the woman whose allegations sparked the whole investigation, Judy Johnson was dead. Judy had struggled with mental health issues and alcoholism, a fact that had been kept from defense lawyers. She'd come to Detective Hoag with increasingly bizarre allegations that she claimed her son Mitchell had made, that Mitchell's eyes had been poked, that he'd been forced to assault goats, that he'd been made to drink concoctions of urine and blood. Now, to understand why anyone would have believed her, you have to take a look at what the media were reporting at the time. The truth about Satanism is they truly do use blood and they mix it with urine, and then they also use the real meat, the real flesh. This is what makes Satanism true. 
Soon, the fear had spread like a virus throughout the state and well beyond. A case which has shocked much of Southern California and caused a lot of parents to worry about the safety of their children. It's hard to say if others would have co-signed on Judy Johnson's allegations so heartily if they'd known the whole thing began with a woman on the verge of a mental breakdown, a woman who would eventually be hospitalized, diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Maybe they would have still believed. And I don't want to imply that that's inherently problematic, that people with mental illnesses should be discounted entirely. Not at all. But when it comes to filing criminal charges, every allegation should be substantiated, especially when those charges began with somebody already struggling with paranoid delusions. In hindsight, some of Judy's allegations, of course, sound ludicrous. But at the time, they were bolstered by real journalist reports of a disturbing trend across the country. Whether a Satan exists is a matter of belief, but we are certain that Satanism exists. To some, it's a religion. To others, it's the practice of evil in the devil's name. It exists, and it's flourishing. That's Geraldo Rivera. Before you tar and feather me for playing Geraldo after referencing real journalists, know that once upon a time, Geraldo supposedly was one. He began as an eyewitness news reporter for an ABC affiliate in New York. In 1972, he won a Peabody Award for public service for real, hard-hitting journalism about mentally ill patients being mistreated. So, whatever you think about Geraldo today, if you bother to think of him at all, back in the 1980s, he was considered a journalist. And he said, This is not a Halloween fable. This is a real-life horror story, and it will give small children bad dreams. As for teenagers and their parents, we hope you are watching, because it's teenagers who are most likely to fall under the spell of this jumble of dark, violent emotions called Satanism. This program, watched in 20 million households, aired in 1988, five years after the allegations at McMartin surfaced, but two years before the case would finally wrap up in court. In the meantime, more and more allegations piled up, and not just in Manhattan Beach or even California. It's all over the United States and probably all over the world because it's just something that people are experimenting with now. It was a satanic panic. Underground networks of Satanists were infiltrating daycares and preschools to physically and sexually abuse children in occult rituals. There was this massive panic that there were widespread rings of satanic ritualistic abuse that was being committed upon children. Beyond the mayhem and monster, it's said that a nationwide network of satanic criminals exists. Start with the warped and wicked Charles Manson. It's everything that human beings don't understand. It's all their fears. It's what they're not sure of. You dig what I'm saying? Satan to me would be God. It bolstered the fears that there were some high-profile cases that did, in fact, seem to have some ties to Satanism, or at least killers who claimed to worship him. David Berkowitz, the 44-caliber killer-turned-son-of-Sam, wasn't initially overt about those claims when he was arrested in 1976 for a string of New York City murders, but he still said he got his instructions to kill from a 600-year-old being who talked to him through his neighbor's dog. Richard Ramirez, the so-called night stalker who terrorized chunks of California in 1984 and 85, said at a court hearing, Parasites 
Then there were smatterings of smaller cases, too. Yesterday's conviction of Scott Waterhouse for the murder of 12-year-old Giselle Cody may finally bring an end to talk of a satanic cult in the town. It all led many to believe that... Whatever the connection, there is no doubt that teenage satanic activity in this country is increasing dramatically. And people found that terrifying. A New York Times story published this year estimates that nearly 200 people were charged with crimes over the course of the satanic panic. Dozens were convicted. Margaret Kelly Michaels, a daycare worker in New Jersey, spent five years in prison after being convicted of 115 counts of sexual abuse against 19 children. Among the outlandish claims against her was that she forced children to eat pies made of excrement and stabbed them in the genitals with forks and knives. When asked how the latter could have happened without leaving scars, the prosecutor shrugged. Michael's alleged victims were questioned using the same types of puppets and coercive language as the kids in the McMartin case. In 1992, Fran and Dan Keller were convicted of assaults they were accused of committing at Fran's daycare center. The school had opened three years earlier and had a pony, cages of rabbits, a playground, even a swimming pool. As with McMartin, the allegations began with one three-year-old child who, an appellate court later acknowledged, had psychological and behavioral issues. The girl asserted that the Kellers had sliced her dog's vagina with a chainsaw and also took the girl to a cemetery where she said she saw a policeman throw a person into a hole after which Dan Keller shot the person in the hole and cut up the body with a chainsaw while all the children helped. The Kellers were accused of forcing kids to swim with baby-eating sharks, to drink blood laced with Kool-Aid, and to have videotaped sex with adults. You'd think that those kinds of activities might have left behind some physical evidence, but there was none. The Kellers were convicted entirely on the questionable statements of preschoolers. And those statements kept them in prison for 22 years. The couple was finally released in 2013. The Travis County DA declared the couple innocent. Which means the Kellers can begin applying to get $80,000 a year in compensation from the state as part of a program for people who have been wrongfully convicted. The Kellers ultimately were awarded more than $3 million. Now back to Ray Bucky and his mother, Peggy McMartin Bucky. Peggy spent two years in jail awaiting trial and then finally was freed on a $300,000 bail. Ray was considered more of a ringleader and a flight risk. He spent five years in jail before being released on a $1.5 million bail. With charges dismissed against the other five defendants in the McMartin case, Ray and Peggy finally faced a jury. Just like the preliminary hearing, the trial dragged on and on from July 1987 to January 1990. The entire time, they maintained their innocence. I never did anything. My son didn't do anything, nor my mother, my daughter, or any of the teachers. I just can't imagine ever molesting a child. No, Miss Bill, I know that, that I did not molest children ever in my life. Of the hundreds and hundreds of children who claimed to have been assaulted, only nine ended up testifying. 
Key McFarland, the therapist who had interviewed the children, told reporters there was good reason some kids wouldn't take the stand. From one newscast, Prosecutors need the children to testify against him, but there's a problem. CII's Kate McFarlane claims that some children fear Bucky will kill them if they show up in court. It's an overall best statement. I would say they're terrified. Never in any of the reporting were Judy Johnson's mental health issues mentioned. Not only that, but prosecutors didn't tell defense lawyers about them either. Lawyer Danny Davis again. The district attorney concealed all about Judy Johnson from us. We finally located her hidden, as it were, in a motel. So the truth is, they hid it. They concealed it in what is old-fashioned violation of law. Exculpatory evidence that the mother, who was the face on a mistaken account of molestation, was mentally disabled, emotionally disabled. Judy had been set to testify in a pretrial hearing in late December 1986, so it sparked conspiracy theories galore when she was found dead in her home on the eve of her testimony. An investigation found that after her breakdown led a judge to send her children to her brother's home, Judy had been drinking heavily and ignoring the symptoms of a stomach ulcer that was tearing her insides apart. She died of liver disease. Still, prosecutors had other alleged victims, so they plowed ahead with the trial. Judy Johnson's son, whose allegation sparked the whole investigation, didn't take the stand. But the kids who did told heartbreaking stories. From the beginning, the allegations heard in court have been horrific. The first child to testify, a seven-year-old boy, told of being sodomized and forced to play naked games. But there were harder-to-believe tales as well. This is Abby Mann, a screenwriter who ended up making a movie in 1995 about the case. They were saying there were tunnels underneath the school where there were rooms where kids were molested. They were saying that the youngest teacher had a private plane and flew them for rituals to Palm Springs. Trouble was, no one could locate this plane. No one could find underground tunnels. No proof of any rituals ever surfaced. And the jury noticed... Peggy was acquitted of all charges. Ray was acquitted of 52 charges, but the jury deadlocked on the remaining 13. The prosecutor vowed to retry him on those counts. But the second trial also ended in a hung jury. It wasn't ideal for Ray, who wanted an outright acquittal. But after the second trial, the ordeal at least was over. In the end, the case lasted seven years and cost $15 million, making it the longest and most expensive case in the history of the U.S. legal system. $15 million spent and zero convictions. Some borderline good did come out of it. Experts are better equipped to talk to children about abuse now, for example. During the panic, the kids in question were accused of lying until they concocted a story of abuse. Even when they protested, parents and therapists kept pushing, sometimes asking leading questions or even hypnotizing them. Nowadays, it's better known that false memories can be implanted, especially in young, impressionable children. Which, by the way, means those kids were victimized regardless. They might not have suffered the original trauma alleged in court, but they still were probably traumatized by being repeatedly exposed to descriptions of terrifying abuse. And some of them likely even came to believe the allegations. Hell, some of them might have been abused by someone, 
but the inappropriate questioning of the kids ensured that their testimony would never hold up in court. Journalist Kevin Cody told CBS Los Angeles for a 30-year retrospective piece that he stayed in touch with some of the kids as they grew into adulthood. The children are doing great. Very happy, well-adjusted. But questions linger. I said, you know, do you have an independent recollection of being abused? No. Do you think you're abused? Yes. And I've asked several times, and are you interested in talking about this? They say no, and I say, okay, let's not talk about it. What's ironic is that the people who pursued these allegations had a saying, believe the children. But they themselves didn't believe the children. Not the first time the kids denied any abuse, or the second. No matter how outlandish the claims, they ultimately believed what they must have wanted to believe. Apparently, they preferred conspiracy theories to the simple, boring truth. That there was no evidence anything had happened. Even Geraldo Rivera eventually apologized for his coverage, saying that what he reported had helped fuel the so-called satanic panic. In 2005, one of the accusers wrote an op-ed piece for the Los Angeles Times in which he said he lied and he apologized. He wrote of the so-called experts who examined him, quote, I remember them asking extremely uncomfortable questions about whether Ray touched me and about all the teachers and what they did. I remember telling them nothing happened to me. I remember them almost giggling and laughing, saying, Oh, we know these things happened to you. Why don't you go ahead and tell us? Use these dolls if you're scared. Anytime I would give them an answer that they didn't like, they would ask again and encourage me to give them the answer they were looking for. It was really obvious what they wanted. End quote. When he finally relented, they told him how smart he was and how much he was helping other kids who were being hurt but weren't as smart or brave as he was. He said the lie ate at him, though. At some point, he tried to come clean with his mom. He described crying hysterically on his bed with his mother begging him to tell her what was wrong. You won't believe me, he said. She promised she would. Finally, he said, nothing happened. Nothing ever happened to me at that school. His mom didn't believe him. In the aftermath of the case, Virginia McMartin and Peggy Ann Bucky, that's Ray's sister rather than his mother, unsuccessfully sued Key McFarlane and the Children's Institute International for violating their civil rights. The suit also alleged that McFarlane leaked information to a TV reporter she had become romantically involved with, whose reports spread false allegations. Peggy McMartin Bucky, Ray's mother, also filed a $1 million civil rights suit against Manhattan Beach officials and media members. And that suit also failed. The only suit the family won was a slander suit against a parent, for which they were awarded $1. To research this story, I read the book They Must Be Monsters, A Modern-Day Witch Hunt by Matthew Leroy and Derek Haddad. I also read contemporary news accounts But I skipped Abby Mann's movie, Indictment, The McMartin Trial, because James Woods. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. 
Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 